Hello, hello, and welcome back to Organic Gardening for Beginners, the show that helps you get started with your garden no matter what season it is. Which is actually pretty appropriate because today, despite the fact that it is October and gardens are winding down, we're actually talking about next season and some of the flowers that I would recommend growing in your garden no matter what else you have planted because they are all going to be super beneficial for a variety of reasons. And the reason we're doing this now in October and not in the spring is because if you're anything like me, as you're walking around your garden these days, you are already thinking ahead to next year and what you're going to add, what you're going to take away, what you'll do differently. And I want to convince you to make a little bit of room for some extra flowers to put into your garden, even if you hadn't previously thought to do so. All right, so welcome to episode 27, 10 must-have flowers for your garden. And these are must-haves because they are either awesome cut flowers, they attract pollinators, or they attract beneficial insects, or some combination of those three things. And in one case, we've even got one that will actually repel pests. Now, let me slide a little caveat into here. Any flower in your garden is going to be beneficial. I can't think of a single flower that doesn't attract some type of pollinator or beneficial insect or repel pests or even attract birds or, you know, provide some use, even if it's just beauty. And the flowers that I'm putting on this list, and it was hard to whittle it down to 10, they are on the list because they either have multiple purposes or they do one job really, really well. And when you are selecting flowers for your garden, one thing to keep in mind, actually two, are how much of a blooming period that flower has and how can you mix and match those blooming periods so that you always have something in bloom in your garden. So basically, try to avoid only planting spring blooming flowers or only putting in something like a fall blooming dahlia followed by mums where you're only going to have flowers starting in say August and then going up until your frost. Like you would have missed your whole spring and early summer blooming period where you are losing out on attracting pollinators, attracting beneficial insects, and of course, missing out on just that plain beauty and maybe even having a fresh flower to cut while you're out there. So a long blooming period, if you plan it right, you can realistically have flowers from, I would say, April until November. And that's if you're using the full range of bulbs and corms in the springtime, your standard annuals and perennials in the summer, and then using tubers such as dahlias and fall flowers like mums in order to keep those blooms going up until your first frost when most things are going to die. Second thing I want to bring up is have a variety of flower shapes in your garden, if at all possible. And the reason for this is that different pollinators prefer different types of flowers. For example, butterflies in particular They'll visit all kinds of different flowers, obviously, but their favorites tend to be what are called umbel-shaped flowers that are shaped like an umbrella that have this big almost landing pad where they can stretch out their wings, whereas something like a hummingbird prefers a tubular or funnel-shaped flower where they can stick their tongue in there and get the nectar. Obviously, that doesn't mean that a hummingbird won't stop by a zinnia and fish in there for nectar or that a bumblebee won't go from an umbel shape to a ball shape to a funnel shaped flower. Having a variety of shapes will just increase your chances of a variety of pollinators and beneficials. And why not 
do it if you can. And again, just like with mentioning the beauty from before, it'll also just add some variety to what you are seeing in the garden and what you have in your bouquets when you go and cut your flowers. So those two little side notes uh, that I just want to point out. And now we are finally starting our list, which is starting off with the flower called yarrow. If you are into herbs, you may have also seen this listed as an herb because the plant is medicinal. Typically the roots are used, but the flower heads themselves, and I believe also the leaves can be used uh, for medicinal purposes. Obviously today we're just talking about the flowers, which fall under that range of umbel shaped flowers. So it produces a stalk that has this nice flat round flower that the bees and the butterflies go gaga for. And it comes in a variety of colors from all white to mixes that have whites, yellows, pinks, lavenders. You can also often get single strains of those colors and some are more muted and some are brighter. So it's very flexible as to what color you bring into your garden, which is super handy if you're looking for a certain shade to go with your cut flower garden. It's also super easy to start from seed. You can start these ones either in the fall and then allow them to overwinter as seedlings and they'll bloom a little bit earlier in the springtime, or you can plant them out in early spring as a seedling, or you can even direct sow them. I usually start them from seed, but one cool thing that might mean you only have to start them from seed once is that yarrow actually spreads really easily. It will drop seeds that self-sow, meaning that once they drop into the ground, they will lie dormant until the weather is conducive enough for them to sprout, meaning that they are just going to self-propagate themselves from year to year. And then the plant itself also tends to kind of creep out so that what may have started as a little four-inch pot of a yarrow seedling eventually turns into this foot-wide swath of yarrow plants that you might actually need to divide after a few years so that each plant stays healthy and has enough space for itself. So yarrow, very easy to grow, nice umbel-shaped flowers, super attractive to pollinators, in particular butterflies with that landing pad-shaped flower. Number two on our list are zinnias, which I've talked about zinnias many, many times because they are a super easy flower, very multi-purpose. They draw in a variety of pollinators and beneficials, and some of the most common that I have seen are bees, butterflies, and hummingbirds. And you might not think it with their typically ball-shaped flower that they would be attractive to hummingbirds, but they can stick their tongue in, and the purple and red varieties in particular, you'll see hummingbirds on those. Um, and if you are new to starting flowers from seed, then this is an awesome crop for you because you can direct sow them out in the garden after all risk of frost has passed, and they are extremely reliable germinators. There's not a whole lot that you need to do for them. The only thing that could make them difficult to germinate is if the soil is too cold. So even if you're getting impatient next spring, don't plant them too soon outside because they'll just sit in the soil and wait for it to warm up to the right temperature. If you want to try to get a jump start, they're also very easy to start indoors in a little seed tray. Same rules apply. Keep the soil warm, keep the, so the seeds moist, and you will see germination in as early as three days, but typically they take five to seven days to germinate. And another cool thing about zinnias, other than just their general beauty and use, and they're also one of the most popular cut flowers. I forgot to mention that because they are 
Again, so easy to grow, very prolific, and they tend to have a very long vase life, meaning you won't put it in a vase and three days later it's wilted, but rather you can get them to last a week or more in the vase as long as you keep the water clean. And then as far as colors, this one has the the biggest range of colors of the ones on this list. You can find zinnias that are even in green, which is obviously a very unusual color for flowers, to dark purples, lavenders, whites, creams, reds, pinks, like, and everything in between. The only color that it doesn't have is like a true blue, which again is relatively uncommon with flowers. But no matter if you're doing something like an all white garden, or you want every color of the rainbow, or, you know, anything in between, maybe you like muted antique shades, you can find that shade in a zinnia. One of my tips for keeping production high with zinnias is to put them on your list for deadheading. As a reminder, we've talked about this before, but if you're new to the show, first off, hello. And second, one of the biggest chores that you need to keep on your list during the summer is deadheading your flowers, which basically means cutting off the cycle of uh, pollinization to seeds. So you want to remove any flowers once they start to fade before they go to seed because that's going to slow down the overall flower production of your plants. And so by deadheading them, you are keeping new flowers coming on for a longer period of time. And because zinnias are so prolific, there will be a constant need to deadhead them if you want to keep them in flower for as long as possible, which I would highly recommend you do because they're just so darn pretty. And you will definitely see an increase in pollinator activity in your garden with them. Some varieties get super duper tall, like six feet tall, tall. And so they could benefit from being staked or being grown in something like a tomato cage. Now, obviously, a tomato cage isn't going to reach all the way to the top, but it can help keep the base and, you know, say the lower half of the plant sturdy so that if you have a windstorm or summer rainstorm or something like that, your plants don't all fall over and get flattened. Speaking of tall plants, number three on my list are sunflowers. And this one is a very classic choice for any garden, whether it's a mixed garden or a flower garden. And they are very well known for attracting pollinators such as bees, and they also make great cut flowers. Some sunflower varieties don't produce pollen, which is the yellow superfine powder that you may have seen on your kitchen counter if you've ever brought in some cut flowers, in particular sunflowers. And even if they don't produce pollen, they still produce nectar. So any sunflower variety, even if you're looking at the description and it says pollenless, it's still worth growing because so many beneficials can still come and benefit from the nectar in that sunflower. So as always, one of my side notes Super duper easy to start from seed. All Really, everything on this list is easy to start from seed. I wanted to include snapdragons, but they can be tricky to get started on your own, so they did not make the cut. In any case, sunflowers, you can get blooms all summer long from about Mother's Day if you really push your spring planting up until your first frost. This will require multiple plantings because each Sunflower will only bloom from either one week to maybe six weeks. And those one weekers are only going to be one single flower or one a single stem sunflower. 
whereas the longer bloom period is for branching varieties. Again, like with others, there are a lot of different possible colors from your classic golden yellow sunflower to lighter buttery shades to dark burgundies. There are bicolor. And then there's also variation to be had in the shape of the flower itself, where you might have a flower that has one single row of petals, and then some are double or multiple rows of petals to where they almost have a fluffy pom-pom-like flower head. So a huge amount of choice there for whatever your aesthetic is or whatever your purpose is. Sunflowers make great cut flowers. They last maybe five days or so in the vase, um, and then they are long-lasting in the garden as both a decorative flower, but then also, especially your branching varieties, they are going to produce a nice seed head that most of the birds are going to flock to as the season winds down. So if you have sunflowers that you haven't picked, just leave them in your garden. The birds will be very grateful, and you'll see them all over them uh, harvesting the seeds themselves for a little snack. Number four on our list are is a flower called alyssum, and this flower is not a cut flower. It's actually a very low-growing, almost ground cover-like flower that, if you've never seen before, it has these delicate little blossoms, usually white, sometimes purple, or a mix of those two colors, um, and it does a fantastic job, as with all, pulling in beneficials and pollinators. That's alyssum's specialty. And alyssum is kind of one of those multi-purpose flowers that if I have an empty spot in my garden, I will throw in some alyssum seeds or plant and it just kind of grows as an understory amongst all of my other plants. I especially like them underneath kale because they do a great job of pulling in, butter, um, not butterflies, ladybugs, who will then also go up to the kale and eat any aphids that they find. Alyssum can bloom most of the season especially in the spring and fall. And in my own garden, I've noticed that it will slow down its blooming frequency or vigor, we'll say, during the summertime when it's hot. So if you have a spring planting that's not doing so well during the summer, just honestly leave it be. Make sure it's got, you know, regular water as with everything. And then chances are you'll see it kind of come back to life in the fall once the temperatures cool off a little bit. If you have an alyssum out there that does really well during the summertime, then let me know because that's one that I like to have all summer long. It is relatively easy to start from seed. The seeds are super duper small, like teeny weeny. And so when you go to sow them, you're not going to cover them at all. And don't plant just one or two seeds per seed cell like in your tray, put like a sprinkling because these are ones that that grow best as a cluster of plants because they're so small. So don't be afraid to plant the whole packet if you're sowing alyssum from seed, either in your seed trays or straight out in the garden. Just make sure you keep it evenly moist so that the seeds don't dry out, which you'll have to keep on top of because the seeds are so small and not covered. And that's uh, just set yourself little reminders. Number five on the list is my oldie but goodie, a nasturtium. No matter where I've lived, no matter what season it is, I always have nasturtium growing in the garden because it's, I would have to honestly say, the easiest plant to grow. And once you plant it, you will never have to plant it again. Uh, it can almost get invasive because it's so prolific at producing seeds and those seeds start or germinate on their own so easily. And a nasturtium can be found either as a 
trailing variety or there are ones that just stay more contained and have a mounding growth habit. So depending on what you're looking for, you can even get them to grow up a trellis as long as you kind of weave the vines through. So it's very multipurpose as far as where you plant it. It, like everything, pulls in pollinators like crazy. The bees love it. It also brings in hummingbirds because it has that funnel-shaped flower that we mentioned earlier and your standard rotation of beneficial insects such as ladybugs or parasitic wasps, things like that. It, uh, like I mentioned, is super easy to start from seed. You can start it early indoors or you can direct sow it in the garden and then that's probably the one and only time that you'll have to sow it unless you're bringing in new varieties. And they come in pretty much all the colors again from dark, dark burgundy to red, orange, and yellow are the very typical colors. You can find creamy yellows. Uh, They don't come in green or like a purpley blue, but they do come in like a fuchsia purple. So a lot of variety there. And as a side note, the, the whole plant is edible, like from roots to seed. The I haven't ever eaten the roots, so I can't say what they taste like, but the seed pods are really good. They're a little bit zippy, almost like a wasabi type of spicy, and the same for the flowers and the leaves. And I love to put the flowers in a salad, or I've even decorated cakes with them. And if you have kids, these are an awesome one. Just check for bugs and bees that might be hiding inside before anybody goes to eat them. Number six on the list is Scabiosa, also known as a pincushion flower. And you've heard me mention this flower before because I think it is a very unsung, a big unsung hero of the garden because I don't know anybody who grows it and I will never not grow it since I experimented with it a few summers ago because it has pulled in more bees than I won't say any other, but it is right up there in the top most attractive flower in the whole garden. Swallowtail butterflies in particular, when we lived in California, they were all over the scabiosa. And it makes an excellent cut flower, very beautiful, both when it is an immature seed head before the flower has opened, and then when the flower is open, and you can even get some varieties that are grown specifically for the seed pods that will last a very long time in the vase, and you can even dry for dried flower arrangements later in your season or over the winter. You can start Scabiosa very early in the season because it is more cold tolerant than a lot of other flowers. And like yarrow, you can actually start it the fall before and then let it overwinter and it will bloom all the earlier in in the springtime. Again, here you see a huge variety of colors from cream to pink to red to one that's super duper dark. They call it Black Knight uh, because it's such a dark purple that it's got almost a blackish hue to it. Very easy to grow. Definitely give it a shot if you have never tried this one before. Number seven is right up there with nasturtium as far as oldie but goodie, and that is a marigold. And marigold does not get a whole lot of attention these days, I don't feel like, but it's such a beneficial flower. If you can only grow one, it might have to be a marigold because these guys are known to prevent a soil-borne parasite called root knot nematodes. And This one is not just an anecdote or an old wives tale, like there's actual scientific evidence behind it, that if you plant marigolds directly before a crop that's vulnerable to nematodes, then it can prevent that from becoming an issue. And nematodes are a parasite that infect the roots of your crops 
and cause what looks like a knot basically in the roots um, instead of just being a long straight root it gets these like little ball um, knobby structures on it and it affects the way the plant can grow and thrive so nothing you really want to infect your garden bed so if that has become a problem for you in the past or you are concerned about it then make sure you've got some marigolds in your garden this summer you can start the seeds early indoors. You can plant them straight out in the garden. Again, everything on this list is very easy to grow from seed. If you're looking specifically for the benefit of avoiding root knot nematodes being uh, an issue in your garden, then go for one of the French varieties because they release the largest amount of the chemical that prevents the parasite from becoming an issue. So not all varieties are as good at repelling it um, or preventing it. And so the French marigolds are the ones that you should go for. Next up, number eight is the black-eyed Susan. And this is the one slightly tricky one to start from seed that I did include. And that's because they're so easy to find as seedlings out at nurseries and sometimes even in big big box stores. You can find snapdragons too, because I mentioned that one being a trickier one. Um, but usually they're just shorter varieties that don't have the robustness of a tall cutting variety. And so that's why this one's on the list anyways. Black-Eyed Susan are also, their real name is Rebecca, but they're most commonly known as Black-Eyed Susan. So that's how I refer to them on the show. And they make an excellent cut flower. They're very attractive to pollinators. And then they're also a very popular flower for birds once they go to seed. And I mentioned this on an episode a few weeks ago about why you should leave your flowers behind. And one of the flowers I talked about was black-eyed Susan producing hundreds and hundreds of seeds per seed head and how it will pull birds in to come and eat them. So if you have black-eyed Susan in your garden this year and you haven't pulled them out yet, please leave them behind because the birds will thank you for it. If you want a black-eyed Susan that can grow in the shade, then brown-eyed Susan is a an easier-to-grow variety that can thrive in a little bit more shade. Most of these flowers on the list are all sun lovers. I would say nasturtium can get by in a little bit of shade, as can alyssum, especially if you're growing it as that understory um, level in your garden. But if you have a shady garden and you want to try for a Rebecca, then look for brown-eyed Susan. That one you will almost surely need to start from seed on your own. And I actually posted a reel about this a few weeks ago as well of starting black-eyed Susan from seed. And just, they ju they are not difficult to start. They just take a long time. So you just have to be super patient with them and keep them well watered until they germinate so that the seed doesn't dry out. If you have a sunny area, in your garden, then this is also a good place to put black-eyed Susan because they're a native prairie flower, so they're used to tougher conditions. And so they don't need as much water once they get established. So black-eyed Susan is a very versatile flower, or I guess I should say adaptable, in that it can take all different kinds of growing conditions and still thrive and produce some very nice flowers for you. So give that one a shot if you haven't before. Number nine, second to last on our list, are sweet peas. Again, not as common of a flower to be grown, I don't think, which is a bummer because they smell so good and they will bloom for weeks on end. 
I have found to be hummingbirds, the biggest visitor to sweet peas, followed by bumblebees. I don't see too many beneficial insects or like parasitic wasps or ladybugs or anything like that on sweet peas, but I'm okay with that because they have plenty of other flowers to go to. And I would grow sweet peas for their fragrance alone. They're just a very old fashioned, sweetly scented and looking flower that they just beautify any garden. And they also make really nice cut flowers and they are an early bloomer early in the season. So it's a nice option to have in your late spring blooming garden. And in some climates, if it doesn't get too hot, you can get them to bloom all summer. I haven't tried that yet because I've lived in warmer climates for so long. But now that we're back in the Northwest, I am definitely going to see how long I can stretch their season. And I actually have some as seedlings right now that I'm going to overwinter in a slightly sheltered area and see how early I can get them to bloom next year. These start from seed just like peas, snap peas like your regular garden peas. Very easy. They benefit from soaking for anywhere from a few hours to overnight to soften the outer shell of the seed to speed up germination, but you don't have to do it. They'll still germinate. Most varieties are climbing. You can find some that are dwarf varieties that you can put in a hanging basket or in your regular garden, but not trellis them. But for the vast majority of sweet pea varieties, they'll grow anywhere from four to six feet or maybe even taller, depending on your climate. So they really benefit from a trellis as simple as a little piece of chicken wire all the way up to a fancier obelisk type of decoration or an arbor or something like that. And that will also help them produce longer stems for cutting if they're trellised and not all clumped up on each other in, in, a, in a basket or something like that. One super important thing to note is that sweet peas are toxic. You cannot eat them, not the seeds or the plants. So if you have pets or kids that are curious to eat everything, maybe skip these ones or put them in an area that they can't access. There are plenty of garden flowers that we don't even realize are toxic. So this is not isolated to sweet peas, but it's always one that I like to mention. For example, foxgloves are also toxic if eaten. Um, and But, you know, we grow them anyway. So just just to put that little alert out there for you. The last one on the list, number 10, is called Orlia. And this might not be one that you've heard of because it's not very popular in home gardens, but it's very popular among flower farmers. And Orlia is similarly shaped to yarrow as an umbel type flower. It, to give you kind of a mental picture, one of the popular varieties is called white lace. And so this round, flat bloom is very intricate, very lacy looking, and it is attractive to pollinators, of course, otherwise it wouldn't be on this list. But for those pollinators like the butterflies or the larger ones that are looking for that landing pad to stretch out, Orlia is a great choice for that. And I like it in particular because it's able to overwinter as a more cold tolerant flower and it blooms very early in the spring if you have overwintered it. I've got some out in the garden right now next to my cabbages and broccolis because I'm hoping that in the spring it will draw in ladybugs in particular to eat any aphids that are trying to go after my brassicas, which can frequently be a target of aphids. Easy to start from seed. It has a large flat seed, kind of like a dill. Um, 
and it needs slightly cooler soil temperatures to germinate. But other than that, it is very easy going as long as you, you know, keep it moist and give it some sunlight. It will do totally fine. It also makes a great cut flower, but the timing on cutting it can be a little bit tricky as to how open or closed the flower still needs to be before you cut it. And if you cut it too soon, then it can wilt early in the vase. So give it a shot. Try some different stages of maturity and see what will yield the longest vase life for you. But definitely experiment with it because it's such a pretty flower to bring into your bouquets and so different, not one that you commonly see even among local florists, the ones that don't buy from local um, flower farmers, because it's not a flower that we import from anywhere. All right, there you have your list of the 10 flowers that I would include in any garden. Definitely a variety of shapes, of sizes, of needs such as a trellis or no trellis or plant it and walk away and never have to plant it again, that hopefully you have found one or two or maybe even all 10 that you are going to plan to grow next year in your garden. And I will have all of the my favorite varieties of each flower linked in the show notes so that you can go and check them out. Some of my favorite seed companies uh, all carry different varieties of these flowers so you can find the color you're looking for, the growth habit, whether that's trailing or dwarf so that it can fit no matter the size or type of garden that you have. As always, if you're getting value out of the show, please do me a solid and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people take a chance on the show and get drawn into this awesome gardening world. And if you have any questions, just shoot me an email. I would be happy to answer them. Talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.